me give you a peek behind the curtain real quick into the Macintosh household. I am the worst person in the world to watch television with. I control the remote. I just, it's a thing. I have it. And I cannot stand commercials, which means whenever a commercial comes on, I change the channel. I don't have to change it to something I want to watch. I just, I go to anything that's on any other channel. I don't want 90 minutes of Preparation H or IBS commercials, right? I'm just not interested. The problem is I never know what I'm going to land on. So I'm killing, you know, 90 seconds, two minutes watching some movie that's already two-thirds of the way through. And invariably, somebody in my household is going to be walking behind the couch on the way to the kitchen, and they're going to stop, and they're going to go, who's that? I don't know. Is it a good guy or a bad guy? I don't know. Why did they just do that? I don't know. What's the point of this movie? I don't know. I'm just trying to get away from Preparation H commercials. I don't know. If I had seen it at the beginning, I would have the context for you, but I just dropped in two-thirds of the way through, so I don't know the overarching story. I can't help you. Wasn't going to call you out by name, Kaylee, but you're welcome. Um, if we're not careful, we can read the Bible the same way. We kind of parachute into one part of the Bible, and, and we start reading something, but we don't have the, the broader context of the rest of the story. Just a small example, on Friday, we're reading in Luke 15, and we read together in our 260 journal the story of the, the prodigal son. Now, if you just start where the prodigal son starts, you're going to read a good story, and you can probably pull some good learning, some good teaching out of that. Maybe make some observations about who might be who in the story. But if you started at the beginning of Luke 15, you know that Jesus is talking to people in a house filled with sinners. And a Pharisee was really mad that Jesus was meeting with sinners, so Jesus tells him this story. So the other brother, the older brother in the prodigal story, is meant to speak to the attitude of the Pharisees. Jesus isn't just taking, telling a story. He's speaking to something in culture in that moment. But if you don't start at the beginning of Luke 15, you don't know that. Well, if you don't start back in Genesis, you don't fully understand what Jesus is saying in the rest of the Gospel of Luke. Because everything Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke has its Genesis. See what I did there? In Genesis. Context is really important. So last week, we, we told the story of uh, kind of the kingdom of God, right? We, we walked through that narrative, uh, how, how the kingdom of God goes from Genesis to Revelation, uh, weaves through the story, and, and I promised that we would look more closely at some of the specific parts of that story. And so this morning, I want to give you a second framework. Last week was the, the kingdom of God framework. I want to give you a second framework to help you understand the overarching story of God. And this series is called The Four-Chapter Gospel. And those of you who are students of the Bible may be going, John, I've read the Gospels. They all have more than four chapters. Yes, they do. You are correct. That's not what this word means. What it means is I want to break the story of God down for you into four distinct movements or four distinct chapters, and it's going to help us better understand what God has already done, what God is doing presently, and what he is still going to do. And as we look at those four chapters, we also get to engage with how he has prepared us and equipped us to participate. So I'm going to start again, kind of like we did last week, 
with the big, big picture. I'm going to give you the God story, the story of the Bible in five minutes or less. Some, some slightly different points of emphasis than last week, but it's the same story. Are you ready? Five minutes. Here we go. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God creates heaven, earth, and humans. Sin enters the world through the choices of Adam and Eve. We refer to this event as the fall, and the result of the fall is relational rupture between man and woman, between mankind and God, and mankind and his creation. But immediately, God seeks out a people through whom he could enter into relationship and then bless all of the nations on earth. He wanted heaven, God's realm, and earth, the realm of creation, to be reconciled again. So he found a man named Abram, later to be called Abraham, through whom he could begin to do that. Genesis 12, 2, God makes him a promise. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families on earth will be blessed. Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had a son. His name was Jacob. Jacob later changed his name to Israel. Jacob's son, Joseph, was sold into slavery by his brothers to Egyptians and eventually rose to be the second most powerful man in the Egyptian empire only under Pharaoh. All of his brothers, who became the 12 tribes of Israel, were eventually enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years until God, through the leadership of Moses, liberated the children of Jacob, children of Israel, out of Egypt. We, we call that event the Exodus, the exiting of the Jewish people out of Egypt through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai where they received the law and the design of the tabernacle where God would be present with his people. God then leads them through the wilderness and eventually into their land of promise, the land of Israel. Israel becomes a nation and settles there first under judges and then led by kings. But Israel strays from God. They're defeated first by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. They're carried out of Israel and into exile. And Jerusalem, the city of God, is destroyed. God begins then to speak through prophets like Isaiah and Daniel about a rescuer of Israel, someone through whom God would not only rescue them but forgive them for their failure. He's called the true light of the world, and God was going to heal Israel through his Messiah. But also, the promise is that through the Messiah, God would forgive and heal all the nations on earth. This is a critical piece of the story, especially when we overlap it with the kingdom of God. Salvation was never meant to be a purely personal or solely personal experience. It's an experience between me and God, and it stays there. God's saving work in Jesus was meant to release something into the world, not only for the sake of Israel, but for the sake of the nations, all peoples, as God had promised Abraham. When this happened, God's people would finally fulfill God's promise and be blessed to be a blessing. Fast forward to the first century, and though many Jews were back in Israel, they were still oppressed, and so they believed themselves to still be in exile. Jesus comes on the scene claiming to be Israel's king, but looking very different than the king they were expecting. He was not a conquering hero. He was, in the words of Isaiah, a suffering servant. He claimed to be divine, but he walked everywhere surrounded by a ragtag group of 12 disciples who kept arguing with each other and getting things wrong. But in his humility, he was fulfilling the, the words of the prophets who said he would be a humble king, born in Bethlehem, who came to the city riding on the foal of a donkey. 
Three and a half years past, Jesus willingly suffers Roman crucifixion where all the evil of the world could hurl at him fell on his innocent shoulders. He, in turn, exhausted evil, conquered hell, defeated the grave, and was vindicated when God raised him from the dead on the third day, just as he had said. All authority is given on earth and on heaven to Jesus, the risen king, and he ascends to the throne of heaven as the world's true Lord. And upon his ascension, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, descended on his followers and empowered them to be his ambassadors in the earth and to help others follow his teaching and to take up his mission. Then we read the acts of the early church, the early leaders' letters to those churches. And finally, at the end of our Bible, we get a very colorful, coded description of what Jesus was saying through John to the early church. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we see heaven overlapping and interlocking with earth again as in the garden and God restoring all things and making everything new. Revelation 21 from the Amplified. Then I saw a new sky, a heaven, and a new earth, for the former sky and the former earth had passed away. There no longer existed any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, all arrayed like a bride, beautified and adorned for her husband. Then I heard a mighty voice from the throne, and I perceived its distinct words saying, See, the abode, another translation says, The dwelling of God is with men. He will live among them, and they shall be his people. And God shall personally be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be anguish, nor grief, nor pain anymore, for the old conditions and the former order of things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, See, I make all things new. That's the God story in five minutes. It's an amazing story. Clap for the story, don't clap for me. This is an amazing story, and one of the most amazing things about it is as you continue to live into it, you discover that the story is still being written. And this story should be shaping how you and I see the world because God began something that is not yet finished, and he invites you and me to take a part in it until he returns to complete it. There is a part for us in the story. Now, before we begin to talk about the first chapter and what our part in the story is, I want to talk to you for a second about our worldview. What is a worldview? Each of us views the world through a different set of lenses. Some may be similar, some may be very, very different. Those, those lenses are a byproduct of everything from our family of origin to the culture in which we were raised, perhaps our gender, our political affiliation, uh, our education, our job. All of these things have an impact on how we see the world. We see the world in a way that makes sense to us. If, if you're married and you're trying to get your head around, do people really have different worldviews, just remember some of the early conversations you had with your spouse when you got married about very simple things like which way does the toilet paper go? Do you open presents Christmas Eve or Christmas morning? Uh, should eggs be scrambled or fried? I mean, there's, you just look at the world and it makes sense to you that way. When I hit about 47, which won't actually happen for another five years, um, I had to get a pair of readers. So these, these are my readers. When I put these readers on, I can see with great clarity right about there. You are all, I'm sure you're beautiful, but right now you're a blurry mob. I have no perspective, no clarity. 
I can't see what's going on in the world. I just have this myopic view of what is right here in front of me. So one day, I call a doctor. He specializes in eyes. He's called an optometrist. And I make an appointment to go in and see him. And he gives me another set of glasses. Now, these glasses look very similar, but these glasses allow me to see everything with clarity. So I can see the handsome people all the way in the back. I've got a midpoint range, and I can still read what's in front of me. But I could not do this on my own. I had to get some help so I could see the world clearly and correctly and engage it as I want to. How we see the world determines how we respond to it. And so we have a responsibility to go to the Lord and say, will you help me develop a biblically accurate or a biblically responsible worldview? Will you help me to begin to see the world from your perspective? If God's rescue work was purely private, it's just me being saved and going to heaven at some point later, then when the world gets bad, I can hide because I'm safe with Jesus. But if God's rescue work is actually meant to bring healing to the world, then when the world gets bad, I'm called to bring healing there. We'll talk more about that in a second. If we lose part of, lose sight of one part of God's story, it affects how we see the world and with it our response to both God and the world that he loves. This is why I want to help us develop a, a biblical framework by talking about the kingdom of God and now breaking the story of God down into these four chapters or four movements. I think we can, we can break the story of God down into four main events without losing or compromising the overarching story, and we call this the four-chapter gospel. I didn't make that up. This is a term coined by, coined by other theologians. When I use the word gospel, it can be a little confusing. I'm, I'm not adding, we're not taking away from anything God has done or said. It's not a new, it's not a different gospel. It's simply a way of understanding the flow of God's story. Beginning with God's intent for creation, moving to man's rebellion from God, God's plan to redeem his creation, and ultimately, that Revelation passage, God's plan to restore his creation where he makes all things new. So it looks like this, the four-chapter gospel. is Chapter one is creation. Uh, in the beginning, God created. That's where God made the world. Chapter two is the fall. Adam and Eve sin and turn away from God. By the time you get to Romans 8.23, it says all of us have sinned, and we all fall short of God's standard. Chapter three is redemption, what Christ has done on the cross, and chapter 4 is restoration. Revelation 21.5, God making all things new. Now, that language I can remember, but it isn't helpful for me when it comes time to apply it. So there are four other words that describe these same four chapters. Ought, is, can, and will. So creation is ought. Now, I know we don't use ought. Maybe it should be should. Um, this is God's design and his intention. Creation represents what ought to be, what God wants for his world. What did he do when he began to create, and why did he create this way? What was God putting into effect? The second, the fall, is. is. This is the reality of our present experience. Creation is broken. Sin has infected it. 
things are not the way they ought to be. This is our present reality. We're going to talk more about all of these, don't worry. Redemption is can. What what has Jesus made possible through the cross? What now can be? Because he went to the cross, he bought us back, he purchased our freedom, and he gave us his spirit, forgiveness of sins. And the fourth chapter, restoration, can also be called will. This is what God has yet to fully finish, what he will one day do, ought, how the world ought to be, is, how it is right now, can, what can be possible because of what Jesus has done, and will, what will God finally, ultimately do. This is all part of the story of God. And over the next four weeks, uh, we're going to look at each of these four chapters to help develop the right worldview the right perspective. And then at each chapter, we get to ask ourselves, how are we doing? How are we living our lives in the light of what God is doing in this particular chapter? Now, you doing okay so far? Information dump. I know. This is why I promise we'll go week by week through all of this stuff. Many, many people, many Christians live out what I would call a two-chapter gospel. For them, the story begins at the fall. The world is a dark, broken, horrible place, sinful. And the second chapter is is, but you can be saved from it. You can be saved by the grace of God if you will surrender your life to him. Both of those things are true. Both of those things are very important. We need to understand that we live in a fallen world, and we need to understand that Christ has purchased a way for us to be saved. However, if the story ends at redemption and not at restoration, if it's just chapters 2 and 3 and we never get to what will be, my question would be, why are we still here? Why don't we, I mean, is, is the purpose of following Jesus really to recruit an army of recruiters who recruit other recruiters? Do we get saved and is our highest calling at that point only to bring people to relationship with Jesus. It is a high calling. I do not demean it at all. It is is critical. But what if God is actually at work doing something more? What if that fourth chapter is intimately tied both to creation and to living out our purpose? As I read the Bible, I keep asking myself that, God, there has to be more. I, I don't, honestly, hear me, I don't, I don't mean to demean or minimize the importance of inviting people into relationship with Jesus, experiencing forgiveness for sins. That is so, so pivotal. But is that the sum total of our responsibility before God? I don't think so. I think if we live within the confines of a two-chapter gospel, we encourage separation when God encourages engagement. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the ends of the earth, Jesus doesn't say, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then I want you to hide in that upper room. I want you to separate yourself from the world. But many people who live in a two-chapter dichotomy go, I get saved, I need to become holy, I have to withdraw from the world around me. But if we withdraw from the world around us, how can we ever be a blessing that we were blessed to be? We can't. We just get really busy blessing ourselves which I don't think is what we were created to do. Let me show you why I think that. Have I offended anybody yet? Okay, I'm trying not to. Well, sometimes I want to offend you a little bit, but only a little bit and always in love. All right, so let's talk about chapter one. Let's talk about ought. 
This describes the way things ought to be. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God creates. There are these movements where God creates and then he rests and he creates and he rests and he creates and he rests. And after every time after he creates, he says, it's good. And then the last time he creates, he steps back and he says, he looks at the totality of his creation and he says, this is very good. And then he creates humans in his image and he gives them a job to do. I'm going to read you this passage, but I want you to see there is no disconnect between being made in God's image and made with a job to do. We read in English. I read in English. You may read in Spanish. I read in English. And so when I read this passage, I'm going to pause when I get to a comma or a period. But Hebrew doesn't have commas and it doesn't have periods. So when I read this passage to you, think of it as one continuous thought. Genesis 1.27, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish and the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. God created them in his image and said, rule and reign. We talked about this slightly in the kingdom of God last week. What's my point? My point is bearing God's image is always tied to vocation. It is always tied to doing something. God said, I am making you in my image, and it's not just static and reflective, it's active and engaged. Bearing my image means caring for my creation. Now, to understand what God was doing and what he was commissioning Adam and Eve to do, we need to understand something called shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that you and I translate as peace. But when we translate it into English, it misses much of its essence. Shalom means universal flourishing. It means everything being the way it was designed to be, so it makes everything around it healthy and whole and better. This author goes on to say it's a rich state of affairs, listen to this, in which natural needs are satisfied, And natural gifts are fully employed. This is the way things ought to be. This is the way things were in the garden. Adam and Eve had every need they would ever have met. But that was not enough. They also had to be able to express the inherent gifts and abilities that were resident in them because they were made in God's image. So a state of shalom is when people have what they need economically, relationally, it's right between you and me, me and God, God and the world, me and creation. But I also have the opportunity to express what God has deposited in me. This is why, that's a conversation for another day. This is the way it ought to be. God says people should have their needs met, relational, financial, food, and they should also be able to utilize their gifts and ability in a way that makes my creation, the things around them, flourish. God created mankind with purpose, with something to do. So we have this creator king who creates humans who live under his reign. He gives them authority to oversee and to manage his creation and says, rule over it in such a way that it, it shaloms, that it, that it flourishes. Because we are made in God's image, the fingerprints of the creation story are all over you. 
if you're ever walking down the street or watching TV and you see something, something about poverty or sex trafficking or racial injustice or war, and something in you goes, that's not right. It, should, that, it ought not to be that way. That's not right. That is because the fingerprints of God in creation are on you. And when you feel that way, it is something of your God-given assignment beginning to rise up inside of you because you are made in the image of God and you are a steward of his creation. The first, the first motion of engagement to bring shalom is recognizing where shalom is absent. Humans are the only ones who have this. Dogs don't go, well, it shouldn't be that way. Your goldfish doesn't go, that ought not to be. But you do because you were created to steward God's creation. The image of God is both something we are and it is something we do. You cannot separate the two. We embody, we, we image God in the world. God's rule and reign was always meant to be brought about in the world through humans. Think about your Bible stories. All of the things that God could do just on his own that he chooses to do through a man or a woman. God didn't need Moses, but he used him. God didn't need Esther or Deborah, but he used them. God didn't need David. He's God, but he used them. It is always God's intent to use men and women to accomplish his work and his will on earth. It's the way it ought to be. God didn't put Adam in the garden and go, hey, get fat and sassy. He gave him a job to do. With mankind, God created mission. And he has never revoked that command. I have not found a place where he takes back our responsibility to care for his creation. He looks at his creation and he says, this is very good. This is the way it ought to be. Every person is made in the image of God. He looks at them. He says, that's my daughter. That's my son. This is very good. They have inherent worth and dignity because they've been made by me. God loves his creation very much. It's infected by sin, but still loved by God. You will not find a place in your Bible where God looks at creation and says, and now it is not good. Do you know God still looks at his creation and says it's good? It's broken, it's infected, it needs healing, but it's still good. When you break your arm, you don't look at your arm and go, well, it was good, it's bad now. I should probably just discard it. You go to work to heal it. You go to work to address the pain caused by the break. It doesn't stop being good just because it is not functioning the way it should. Your job as a parent with a kid who broke their arm or as just a person with a broken arm is to begin to repair and restore the function of that arm. This is what God intends for his creation. Yes, it's broken, but you can make it better. But that's chapter 3 and 4, and I'm getting ahead of myself. The problem is, when we live in a two-chapter gospel, when for us the story of God starts with a bad and a fallen world, and the need to be rescued from it, we start calling the world that God calls good, bad, and it affects our worldview. And when, when we begin to call God's creation bad, when we begin to assign values to people that way, 
we walk away from our responsibility to steward it. It's not my problem. It's not my fault. It's bad. I can't fix it. God's going to save me from it. Stinks to be you, but at least I'm okay. We stop stewarding it. We stop loving people who seem unlovely. We stop looking for the Imago Dei. That's not the way it ought to be. We begin to assign worth on the basis of subjective measures like wealth and looks and status and skills rather than because this person bears the image of God. So if God loves his creation, if God calls it good, then why is there still pain? Why is it such a mess? Well, the answer is chapter 2, the fall. It's fallen into a broken state. It's not what it ought to be. But as we, as we walk through this series over the next few weeks, here's, here's what I want you to keep in mind. We have to remember where the story begins. God creates something that he loves, and he gives it to people made in his image to care for. Not care for like marking time till he comes back, but, but make, it, make it thrive, make it flourish, make it shalom. And he never took it back. What I'll show you next week is that Adam hears again what we call the creation mandate from God after the fall. God uses the same language telling Adam to continue to steward creation. And he tells him, buddy, it's going to be a little bit harder now because you kind of messed up. But he doesn't take back Adam's responsibility, so he doesn't remove the responsibility from me and from you. So, matter of fact, when you get to Psalm 8 and you get to David's writing, he says it explicitly. He says, Psalm 8, verse 6, you put us in charge of your handcrafted world. You repeated to us your Genesis charge. He's talking about be fruitful and multiply, rule the world, govern it. You put us in charge and you told us again you still wanted us to do this. You made us lords of sheep and cattle, animals in the wild, birds flying, fish swimming. This does not mean that, that we're supposed to go Dr. Doolittle. This is, this is a, a Bible author's way of talking about the totality of God's creation, that everything God made, he has put into our hands. This, this, David would say, is the way it ought to be. God's people living out God's plan in God's creation, bearing his image, doing the work he's given us to do. Not withdrawing, but engaging, not apologizing, but lovingly exercising the authority he vested us with as his steward. Where the four-chapter gospel or conversations of the kingdom of God will go sideways and get wonky is if we were use words like authority, reign, rule, kingdom, and we forget how Jesus exercised his rule and how Jesus brought about his kingdom. This is not an invitation for us to be loud, violent, authoritative, or angry. This is an invitation for us to live our lives in such a way that we surrender our lives, take up our cross, that God's creation might be made whole. I'm going to give you homework. Ready? You got homework for this week that you're as excited about as I am. If... If creation was the way God intended mankind to enjoy and flourish in his presence, and if we capture that single idea in the simple word ought, then I want us to look around this week and see where things are not what they ought to be. Simple. 
Ask yourself, how ought people be treated in my work, my school, my family, my neighborhood? And if ought seems weird to you, you can say should. How should people? I'm not asking you what to do about it right now. I'm not asking you to take it on. I just want you to begin to look at the world around you through a different worldview. One that isn't centered in what I need or I want. What's centered on what God might want to be doing in the world. Where is it not the way it ought to be? As I said, this isn't the whole story. It's just the first chapter. But the story is incomplete without it. Genesis is where we get our marching orders. Genesis is what Jesus is calling back to as he teaches about the kingdom of God being present. God is doing a work of redemption, yes, but restoration as well until his creation is once more what it was intended to be, what it ought to be. This is the thing I love about Jesus. You ever have a conversation with somebody where you point out to them what's wrong about something, and they look at you and go, you're accurate, you're absolutely right. What are you going to do about it? And you're like, no, that's not why we're having this conversation. I just, I wanted to inform you so that you could do something about this issue I have now brought to your attention. Sometimes I go to Jesus that way. You know, the world's a mess, Lord. Uh, People are hungry in town. Homelessness is tough. Man, there's political turmoil. Everybody's fighting. Everybody's angry. And God's like, yep, I agree, John. What are you all going to do? God God goes Texas sometimes. What you all going to do about it? How do I know? I know because he told Paul and then Paul told me in Ephesians 2 beginning in verse 7. God has us where he wants us. With all the time in this world and the next to show her grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go about bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we don't make or save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. And then this. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work. Image and function. Image and vocation, never separated. Join him in the work he does, the good work he's gotten ready for us, the work we had better be doing. I don't know what you saw when you looked in the mirror this morning. I saw a guy that probably needed a couple hours more sleep, definitely needed to shave, and shower wasn't going to hurt. When you got up this morning, God saw the answer to the brokenness in the world. He saw his fingerprints on you. He saw his image. And leading out from that, he saw the steps he would invite you to take to begin to bring wholeness, flourishing, shalom, to some segment of society in a way that calls out the gifts and abilities that are resident within you because God put them there. We'll talk about this in the the weeks to come. But whatever you're good at, whatever you enjoy, God intends for you to use those gifts to bring shalom. John, I'm a mechanic Hallelujah. I'm not. 
I can tell you about someone who needs shalom in their life where cars are concerned. John, I paint. Yes. There is no, there is no aspect of creation that God doesn't claim. There is no aspect of creation that God doesn't redeem. There is no, no, no gift, no ability that God is not willing and wanting to utilize to bring his kingdom to bear right where you are. This is the story of God. This is why all four chapters are critical. If you don't understand what God intended, you won't understand what he's working toward now. And if you don't understand what he's working toward now, you won't understand how you get to participate. I don't have a... Listen. The God who threw the stars into the sky, the God who spoke galaxies into being, the God who simply says, let there be and there is, who out of his own essence created the heavens and the earth, that is the God that says, hey, I want to work with you. Do you want to work with me? And that's pretty freaking cool. You can choose not to. You can stay at chapter 3 and be safe. Absolutely. And God will love you. But you will miss out on the adventure of a lifetime and the journey that God has foreseen for you that brings joy to his heart. The choice is ours. I don't want to be a Sunday morning, maybe Wednesday night, sit on my butt and be safe, Christ follower. There is this thing rising up in me that says I want to begin to get outside of my comfort, outside the walls of my church. I want to begin to carry the healing presence of Jesus everywhere I go. And where Satan would want to bring destruction, I want to bring restoration. Where death would reign, I want to be party to resurrection. I want the devil to wet his pants every time he sees someone from LFC walking into a room where he's trying to exert authority. I want him to think, well, I guess my time. That cry... That cry when Jesus got on the, on the shore, are you here to torment me before my time? I'm, I'm not here to torment anybody before their time, but I think there's something where Christ and me can walk into the room and say, sucker, it's time. And I want to do it with you. I don't want to do it by myself. I want you to get to experience the fullness of what God has always intended for you what your life, what your ministry ought to look like. Can I pray for you? Lord, we sing, we sing a song that says, my words fall short. Even now, God, all my words, my words, they, they fall short. I, would you let something begin to resonate deep within us? Lord, as deep calls unto deep, this 
this work of God that you have called us to, that you have created us for, that you are engaging us in. Lord, where our, our worldview has perhaps at times become shaped by something other than your story, your revealed word and will to us, God, would you let us begin to see our world through the lenses of your story? God, would you, would you let us begin to see ourselves through the lenses of your story? There are some within the sound of my voice, even this morning, who are hearing what I am saying and thinking that must be great for everyone, but that's not true of me because I just don't have anything to offer. That person, Lord God, is your daughter, is your son, made in your image, called to rule and to reign on your behalf. So break the power of that lie now, in Jesus' name. Give us eyes to see as we go out into this week about where things are not the way they ought to be. And then, Lord, in the days that come, we invite you to talk to us about how to make them what they ought to be. We love you. We're grateful for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.